That was sure marvelous. I feel like uh, you have given me a wonderful introduction to the message that I have in mind for today, and especially that first song that we sang day by day. One of the things, you know, that I have learned over the course of the years is that most people live with a sense of mystery. Many of us live with a number of questions that usually begin with that uh, little three-letter word, why. And much of the mystery that we feel has to do with suffering, with the hard things of life, with obstacles, with a whole lot of questions that we simply do not know how to answer. And so we ask, why did it have to happen to me? Why didn't it turn out differently? Why can't I be like so-and-so? Why is he or she so lucky? Why does he or she have all the breaks in life? Why? Why has tragedy come into my life? Many of us have had the experience of going through a particularly hard time. I think for Kathleen and me, I think our hardest time was seven years ago when our daughter was killed. Some would even call that a catastrophe. And then for some inexplicable reason, out of the ashes of our personal disaster, some good comes. My father came to know the Lord directly traceable to the death of a man in our immediate neighborhood. I know a man in our little town of Moraga who was heavily invested in real estate. And at some point, he decided it was time to sell and to liquidate all of his real estate assets, which were considerable. He sold just before the real estate market collapsed. This was a number of years ago. And he was so taken with his, what he called his good fortune, he credited it all to God and then made a profession of faith in Christ. And then he began attending Valley Church in Moraga, where Kathleen and I served for a number of years. For those of you that know me, know that before I went into the Lord's service full-time, In 1972, I was in the shoe business, and one of my jobs was to go to market and to buy merchandise six to eight months ahead of the time that it would go on sale. In this particular incident that I'm thinking of, I had purchased quite a large quantity of fashion footwear from Italy. The merchandise arrived by ship in San Francisco Bay, just at the time of a longshoreman strike. The merchandise could not be unloaded, and it was getting close to the time when we needed this merchandise in our stores. And there appeared no end in sight to the strike. So what do you do? Why, what does a Christian businessman do? 
Why did this happen? Well, I went to my office, shut the door, and prayed. And to make a long story short, I phoned some contacts that I knew of in New York City, where I discovered that it just so happened that a large quantity of merchandise similar to what was sitting in the San Francisco Bay uh, just happened, this company happened to be stuck with this merchandise. I was able to buy it at a discounted price and they sent it to us air freight at their cost. So what do you say? Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Part of the majesty and mystery of God is to take a critical event, a catastrophe, a difficult situation, and God's wonderful way of causing that to eventuate in good. And I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, please, First of all, for one verse in Romans chapter 8, which you all know. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Reading. And we know that God causes all things, not some things, not a few things, all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Then if you'll turn back to the book of Acts, chapter 8. And we'll read the first 12 verses. Acts, chapter 8, verse 1. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, that is Stephen, to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Paul went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. And the crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time and astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. 
And may God bless His Word to us. Shall we just have a word of prayer? Father, we thank You for this reading. We thank You, Father, that uh, You superabound in grace towards Your people. And Father, we just want to say thank You this morning. And as we consider this passage that we have just read, Lord, would You teach us? Would You help us? Would You encourage us? Would You help us to trust You more? We give You thanks in the name of Jesus. Amen. Our text this morning illustrates God picking up the pieces of a difficult situation that sinful men had caused and transforming them for good in the lives of a number of people. And that's my message today. That God is bigger than the circumstances of life. And I would like for us to see from the passage we read that God is able. This is how the church began, as we read in uh, Acts chapter 8, with God at work in the midst of His people. And this is how it continues all over the world. God at work in the lives of men and women. God caused the fires of persecution to work together for good. That's the first part of Acts chapter 8 that we just read. The immediate consequences of the death of Stephen was that a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And I want us to notice the language of the text. If you still have your Bibles open, I want you to notice again verse 1. It says there that Saul, who later became Paul, the apostle, was in hearty agreement with putting him, Stephen, to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church. It seems to me little time had elapsed before the mob moved from the stoning of Stephen to raiding the homes of the Christians. It was on that day. On that day, the church had its first taste of what was to be its hallmark for the next 300 years. And that hallmark was persecution. And the severity of the persecution can be measured by its result. The temporary breakup of the church in Jerusalem. The Christians were all driven from the city and scattered abroad. The word all in verse 1 may not necessarily be pressed too literally. For otherwise it would mean that the church in Jerusalem no longer existed. That it was dealt a terrible and almost mortal blow is very likely. Why we don't hear of the arrest of the apostles, I don't know. Were they miraculously saved? I don't know. Did they hide in the same way as after the crucifixion of Jesus? I don't know. 
But uh, they were not scattered abroad. I want you to notice verse 3. Saul began ravaging the church. And like a savage animal, he went after the Christians. And the word ravage means to maltreat, to outrage, to lay waste to. And it sounds very much like what's happening today in certain parts of Laos, in North Vietnam, among the Mien people. And incidentally, hundreds and hundreds of the Mien people are coming to Christ. And the North Vietnamese had sworn that they would eliminate Christianity by the end of 2003. They failed. The church is still growing. And there are parts of China where Christians are being persecuted. So this is nothing new for the church. And I want you to notice the expression, house after house. And you get the feeling of a thoroughly planned attack to get rid of the hated Christians. Then note, and dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. The word drag, the Greek word suro, means to violently drag. It suggests a, a brute force. And in Acts chapter 22 and verse 19, where Paul is telling of his life's history, he says that he also beat the Christians. And the word beat, dero, signifies a blow delivered with great force. I don't know how you read the Scriptures. I, I use my imagination often. And I have often wondered why there's no mention of children in verse 3. They drag the parents off, but there's no mention of children. Did Saul deliberately separate parents from children in an attempt to get the parents to renounce the name of Jesus? That's what I think. I don't know for sure. But there is no mention of children there. What does it all mean? How is God going to bring good out of the actions of sinful men? Was there any good thing that came out of the fires of persecution that began on that day? That day, as verse 1 calls it, is one of the most significant days, in my opinion, in church history. And that day occurred sometime around 35 A.D. And it seems to me that apart from the, this particular persecution, the church movement might have remained a small sect in Jerusalem, ignoring what Jesus had said in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 when He said, You shall be My witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of all the earth. The disciples, by their dispersion, were forced into the second stage of their commission, witnessing in all Judea and Samaria. The enemies of God wanted to kill the church in its infancy, and they almost succeeded. 
But God said, I'm going to cause this persecution to work out for good. You know, what a great God we have. Now notice the second thing God could do in working things together for good. He caused the witness of these scattered, persecuted refugees to work together for good. They were not aimless, hopeless, depressed people. Notice the text again, verse 4. Those who had been scattered... The word scattered is the Greek word diaspora in verse 1 and also in verse 4. And it derives from the word sowing, S-O-W, not S-E-W, sowing. These people were like seed, sown, and consequently wherever they went, there was growth. There was addition. The devil scattered. And in this case, God caused it to grow. And the scattering resulted in the first first missionary movement of the church. And you know, you ask yourself, is this kind of scattering peculiar only to the New Testament? Not at all. And the great example is China. In 1949... Christians in China totaled about one million people. Today they number anywhere up to 75 million. We're not exactly sure of the number because there's addition every day there. Under Mao Zedong, Christians were forced to leave the big cities. And they were sent to the small hick towns throughout the country. What a mistake he made. (laughs) The Christians were scattered to all these little towns. You know, towns called nowhere. Little did they know that these villages would be ripe for the gospel. And that's where the growth came. Verse 4 says also, they went about preaching the word. And the first missionary work of the church was spontaneous, not undertaken under the lead of official or the official guidance of the apostles. These people were not ordained. They had not been to Bible school. They hadn't been to seminary. But they knew God and they loved God and they also must have loved people. You know, the fundamental idea of preaching the Word is the telling of good news. Telling of good news to people who had never heard it before. And the word for preaching here in verse 4 has nothing to do with the delivery of sermons, but always has to do with just telling people about good news. And this is something we can do wherever we live. Now, I want you to get the context here. This is very important. These people who had been severely persecuted were not telling people bad news, but good news. If you had suffered terribly, if you had been uprooted from your home, 
If you had been running for your life, if you were attempting to escape being beaten and put into prison, what good news would you have to share? Hmm? What good news would you have to share? Wouldn't it only be bad news? Well, these were apparently not sad sack evangelists that forgot to tell you about the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel that God loves you. And uh, I can you just imagine this, you know. Here they are just wandering away on the, on the road. I can just see about 10 or 15 in a group or maybe less and encountering some people on the road and they are chatting away. Where'd you come from? What's going on in your life? And on and on. And uh, they, they tell them a little bit. And then they tell them, you know, God loves you. Kathy and I met a man in Bolivia, in the city of La Paz. He was a student there. The University of La Paz, heavily communistic. But one day, the Christian student shared with this man this great message. You know that God loves you? Never heard that before. Never heard that before. And he was so taken with the idea that God loved him that he renounced his own political uh, leanings toward communism and came to be a believer in Jesus Christ. And Kathy and I met him and his wife uh, in their home there just outside the city of La Paz. A leader in the church now. Simply because somebody shared with him on a college campus, Jesus loves you. The hope of the gospel, that God loves you. And that every believer is welcomed into the family of God. Now, if you didn't tell people that, well, it would be bad news otherwise. But that was the good news. The message of these wonderfully ordinary vanilla Christians was convincing because first, the message in itself was really true. But secondly, it was convincing because of the reality of the messengers who brought it. They weren't down on Christianity because of the horrible persecution. They knew where the persecution had come from and it wasn't from God. What was from God was the hope of eternal life. What was from God was an internal quietude or restfulness. A peace. A fellowship and love for one another. And I would submit that as they traveled along, their love deepened. Suffering has a way of uniting those who truly love the Lord. Lastly, I want us to notice a great example of God overcoming great resistance and causing it to work for good. One of the refugees who left Jerusalem was one of the original seven deacons. His name is Philip. 
Philip moved along with other refugees and eventually came to the place, to the city we call Samaria. Samaria was, of course, one of the places that Jesus in Acts 1.8 challenged the disciples to bring their witness. Now, when Philip came to Samaria, he faced two great problems. The first was the enmity and hatred between Jew and Samaritan. They hated each other. I think there are about 300 Samaritans left in the world today. And because of their inbreeding, and most of the Samaritans that are alive today are debauched in some way. They're blind or lame or there's something wrong physically with the, the Samaritans today. And they are still there in Samaria. In New Testament times, this is what was being said. The Jews said, God has reserved the hottest place in hell for the Samaritans. That's a nice friendly statement. At least once a year, the Samaritans were publicly damned and condemned in the synagogue. A Samaritan could not be a witness in a court of law. A Samaritan could never even become a proselyte. Intermarriage was strictly forbidden. And John chapter 4 and verse 9 summarizes it pretty well. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And here was a Jew, Philip, going to the Samaritan city. How in the world is he going to bridge this cultural, historical problem of no dealings with each other? What's he going to do? How is he going to overcome the problem? So this was barrier number one. Secondly, there was a barrier of a particular man. A powerful man. A man whom history calls Simon Magus. And his name is derived from verse 9, where it speaks of this man thought of himself as someone great. And so we call him, Simon Magus means Simon the Great. And there's a large and extended tradition about Simon in early Christian literature. Justin Martyr, who died in A.D. 165, says there was a statue erected in Rome in honor of Simon Magus, who had the inscription, Simon the Holy God. According to Irenaeus, this, uh, Christ, this man, this lawyer who became a Christian and who wrote uh, extensively uh, books about the Christian faith and who, who died about 180, 180, said Simon is the father of the Gnostic heresies which troubled the church so much during the New Testament period. Simon also supposedly founded a sect around a woman named Helena, which sounds to me very much like Christian science. Simon was a false prophet. Simon was a sorcerer. Simon was a great barrier to the gospel. And from our text, we note the influence that Simon had on the city of Samaria. 
In verse 9, he used sorcery or magic in his deception. In this way, he seemed to gain some kind of control over these people. He claimed to be somebody great, verse 9. And the historian Suetonius suggests that this was a claim to be Christ himself. This claim, among others, was, of course, prophesied by the Lord Jesus himself that there would be many false Christs. And here was another one. He claimed to be the great power of God in verse 10. Simon claimed to be the greatest of all the go-betweens between God and man. Notice that this hold on the people had been for a long time. Verse 11. It's tough to break a hold that's been on people for a long time. And it would seem that these people had been captive for so long that they might have given up, been kind of depressed, etc. So it's into the domain of the Samaritans, into the domain of Simon Magus, that this one little old guy, Philip, comes to preach the gospel. Driven away by persecution, but possessing a life-giving message. What's going to happen? Can God overcome this kind of opposition and bring good? I want you to notice the text. Verses 5, 7, and 8. What Philip did was to call attention to the Messiah rather than himself. He didn't say, well, you know, folks, I know you've had it tough here, but I've had it tough too. And I want you to hear my story of how tough I had it. He doesn't do that. He calls attention to the Messiah. He calls attention to Jesus Christ. And I suspect that he did tell the Samaritans the story of Jesus. His coming to earth, his life. His death, His resurrection, His offer of eternal life. And I suspect that the woman of John chapter 4, some of her influence was still remained there in Samaria. Then I want you to notice Philip did some positive acts of good. The gospel majors in transformed lives, not the perpetuation of of a miserable status quo. And because Philip did some good, I asked myself, why didn't Simon do good for the people? Why didn't he bring good things to the people? And I I, I see that in the world today on so many of the mission fields that there's a lack of compassion on the part of these alien religions and they do not help people. Thirdly, when these people heard the good news, you know what they did? They rejoiced. And joy is a product of thanksgiving. These people who were alienated from the Jews found reconciliation in Christ. And the messenger was a persecuted Jew who himself had found a new freedom and salvation in Christ. 
These people who had been dominated by a false prophet now found release and truth in the message about Jesus. And they were thankful and their thanksgiving gave way to joy. I don't know how they expressed their joy. Whether it was through singing, whether it was through a dancing, laughing, they expressed their joy. They were thankful and they expressed their joy. How good is God to overcome deep-seated resistance? To overcome prejudice? To overcome hate? To overcome a false prophet and a false message? And to bring good to these dear people? That's what He did. And there's story after story in the New Testament. And there's story after story, I suspect, here in this congregation of God having brought good to you. I know that's been true of me. From a, from a young, young fellow, the age of 16, who had become suicidal to discovering a freedom in Christ. I couldn't go to sleep. I felt so liberated. It was exhilarating to have been set free. And God is able, as He was able to liberate a 16-year-old high school student, He is able to to, uh, deliver anyone here this morning who needs deliverance. Who needs uh, to be encouraged from a life that perhaps has included a lot of suffering. uh, A life that's included a lot of painful things. God is able to Take away those painful things. And if not that, He's able to carry us through the painful experience. Friends, this is our God. That's who God is. He causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are the called according to His purpose. They work together. The bad things, the good things, the accumulation of things, they come together in Christ and they eventuate in good. This is how the church, the family of God began. This is how it continues. And this is how it will end when we Receive that ultimate good when we're in the presence of God. And all of the things that uh, belong to this, uh, this earthly sphere of things will be gone. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Gone. Our God is the only one 
that can take that series of events, some good, some bad, and cause them to work together for good. I think this is one of God's greatest promises. Praise the Lord for that. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God that uh, brings good to people. You bring us the good of salvation. You bring us the good of the family of God. You give us you bring us the good of a hope beyond this life. You give us the hope during this life. Thank you for putting us in families. Your family. Thank you for bringing us into a loving fellowship. And Father, we pray for anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, but who has been focusing on perhaps a painful life. We pray, Father, that uh, they will put their trust in you as the only one who can take the pain and cause it to eventuate in good. Dismiss us now with your blessing, and may your presence go with us as we leave. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.